This morning we're going to be in uh, Romans chapter 6. You're welcome to turn there. And if you don't have a Bible, these folks will hand you one. Just raise your hand. They'll give you a Bible. Romans chapter 6. We're not going to stand yet. Um, I'm going to do a little background and then we'll we'll get ready for the study. Romans chapter 6. So this past week, uh, it was kind of a kind of a blur uh, we did the two services Sunday last week, and then we had a planning session um, that was grueling, and then we had prayer, and I was just wiped out at the end of uh, Sunday. And then Monday, uh, we had all the pastors gather from the Conejo Valley to go up to a retreat um, that somebody had put together and paid for. It was the first time that I can remember that the pastors and their wives in the, in the Conejo Valley got together. And I was a little discouraged because some of the pastors of the larger churches uh, couldn't make it, and we had a number of cancellations at the end. And, and it was a very nice retreat, and it was you know we had to put the the money down and last minute calls. Um, one man's wife had Lyme's disease, another man's mother died. Um, it just a, a number of, of drop dropouts, and I, I was thinking, Lord, did we miss you on this? And there was one pastor in the Conejo that I had been so burdened. Uh, just disconnected from a younger pastor who's been responsible for planting five churches in the area, just a go-getter. Uh, he's of the millennial generation. And uh, we just we just haven't had a chance for our gears to be in sync. Um, because he's of the millennial generation, he kind of looks at, at my involvement in politics with suspicion because the younger generation doesn't get politics. They're so burned out. Uh, that they just don't want anything to do with it. And I understand that completely. And um, and so whenever I'd be in a meeting with this pastor, oftentimes he'd roll his eyes or get up to leave or something along those lines. And and he, he wasn't signed up to go to the retreat. And I, I just kind of felt like, Lord, did, did we miss you on this? Well, we get the phone call that he and his wife are coming. And I thought, if no other pastor were to attend but him, this would be great. And he comes and, and uh, it was... It was just a lovely time. I can't even begin to tell you how profound it was. Uh, but he shared, and his sharing, he said, you know, we've planted all these churches. Uh, we've been discipling. He said, and one of the hardest things we have is these millennials, when you disciple them, uh, there's, there's no work to be found in California, so they get up and they, they, they leave. And we've seen a number of our folks that we poured our life into leave the state and it's kind of like a reverse Dust Bowl that people came here during the, the Dust Bowl, uh, the Depression, that, to find hope in California. And they call it the reverse Dust Bowl now that more people have left the state than came here during the Dust Bowl. And people saying, well, no, the population of California is not decreasing. Well, the middle class is leaving and there's a disparity between you know the, the very wealthy and the poor. And the middle class is leaving California and we're watching businesses leave. We have the highest gas tax, sales tax, uh, income tax, soon to have highest property tax. We have the highest corporate tax. Um, I think income tax is 11%. So anyone who makes a decent amount of money is going to be taxed almost at 60%. And we have a number of folks that live here five months and 29 days. My, my in-laws are that. They're tax refugees. They, they're only in the state five months and 29 days. All to avoid these taxes. And uh, we're watching this, this golden gift of California struggle. And, um, and so we, we have the highest taxes, but we also have the highest debt, uh, highest debt of any, any state in the nation. Um, you, know, you take the next four states combined, it doesn't equal the debt that California has is, is had. Um, and it's a state that's troubled. And, and so 
he's sharing and the other pastors are sharing and they're talking about them leaving and then it comes to me and it's my turn to share and the idea was what's God doing in and through your ministry and and what's he called you to and then I share about how Calvary Chapel started in 1966 in California Um, we had the eighth greatest economy in the world no abortion to speak of no divorce to speak of it was a great place to raise a family and Calvary Chapels came up on the scene We've experienced 10,000% growth since 1966, 1,500 churches around the world. Uh, The lion's share of those churches are right here in California. We've had the Harvest Crusades, evangelism uh, unbelievably. And um, and in in the, what, uh, 50 years that we've been in California, uh, we've watched California go to the number one, uh, to, to, to having the highest abortion rate of any state in the nation. The author of transgender bathroom bills, no fault divorce, um... We've watched our economy go and tank, and and we've watched our schools go from being number one in the country to being 48th in the country. Thank God for Mississippi. Um, yeah, but but yeah, and and so we're struggling uh, as an as as a state. And I said I looked at this as a pastor, and I thought, why? How are we responsible for this? Because of the disconnect of seeing Christ emphasized in every aspect of our community. And I said, I don't want to leave this state. I want to make it a place where families can flourish. And, and good people make good government. But good people must get involved in government to make government good. And to abdicate our responsibility and not, not encourage Christians and disciple them to engage in that process is, is criminal. And um, so I'd shared that. And then uh, I run into this pastor, and, and he's just sweet as can be. And he said, you know, Rob... Um, and we had this quiet conversation together. He said, you know, Rob, I, I found myself in full disagreement with you. And he said, and I was driving one day, and I just thought, you know what? I don't understand what he's doing, but it needs to be done. And he said, at that point, Rob, I just settled to see that you're a part of the body of Christ doing something I don't understand, but that's necessary. And I said, well, thank you for that. And he said, well, it's gone further. He says, since this weekend, or since our time together, he says, now I understand what you're doing, and I agree with what you're doing. And so we're, we're building inroads and, and encouraging the pastors and trying to encourage one another and see where we fit in the body of Christ and how we're to reach this community. And then following that uh, event, I went to Sacramento for uh, California, a League of California Cities uh, as a councilman for training. And I was up in Sacramento and I just saw just the, the expanse of government. And uh, I was with our our city manager, and he kept pushing me. He said, you know, uh, Thousand Oaks is a very low-tax city. And a uh, matter of fact, of the f- over 480 cities in California, we have one of the lowest tax rates for sales tax in the state. And he, it's awesome. And he said, but our liabilities are increasing, and our, 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 our revenues are, uh, are declining, and our, our needs are increasing. And he said, we, we need to increase that, that sales tax. And... And I said, you know, explain to me how we got to this place. He said, the state has taken all of our development funds. They've taken all of the Proposition 13 funds. The state has taken all of the money that the cities... So the money that we put in locally doesn't end up here locally. And our businesses struggle. And uh, so it was his turn to share. And he's, he's a neat man. I got a chance to know him, Scott Mitnick. And he, he was asked to fill in in one of the events, and he was talking about how he struggles with giving businesses incentives because it cannibalizes other cities. 
and it's a, an endless area where if you incentivize businesses to come into your city, uh, you cannibalize, and it's a struggle. And I, I, it was an open question period, and I didn't want to feel as though there was division in our city, but I did later ask him this question. I said, you, 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 you have no desire to incentivize businesses to come into our city because you feel it cannibalizes. Then my question to you is, why would you then burden businesses with an increase in taxation uh, because the government has uh, gone beyond its means and overspent itself. And when did the government ever get into the business when we were supposed to be in the business of public services? When did we get into the business of pensions, which is our, uh, the highest increasing level of our government? We're now in the pension business in government. And I, and I said, do you, do you see the, the disconnect here? We're going to lose the goose that lays the golden egg because we'll no longer allow businesses to be here and our families will no longer have places for employment. We're going to destroy ourselves. We've got to bring a rein in on government. And he said, well, that, yeah. And, and we had a neat discussion, but, but when, when would we have ever have had that discussion if by God's grace and your effort, I didn't have the chance to be up there because I'd been elected to sit with him and talk about these things. And I had a chance to talk about the Lord. I gave him a book called Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders. And I said, look, I, I know, you know you don't profess my faith, and, and I know there's a lot of scripture in it. And I said, the book isn't actually from me, it's from my wife, because when we left the event with the pastors, there was a book left over. I already had the book. I said, let's just leave it. Michelle said, no, let's take it. I think somebody needs it. And when we were at home, she's, I'm getting ready to go to Sacramento. She says, I think you should give this to Scott. So I said, Scott, this is from my wife, and, uh, and, and the way you read this book is, is the way you eat chicken. Just eat the meat and spit out the bones. And, but the principles are, are solid, and, and you might want to take a look at it. And he said he would. And, and that's the connection. This is, this is how we infuse our culture, and this is what we do. And we have to be educated in these matters. Um, we're coming into a passage of scripture in Romans chapter 6. As we've gone through the first five chapters of the book of Romans, we've been dealing with this concept of justification by faith, just as if I'd never sinned. And Paul is showing us our position in Christ that we have been justified, just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd never sinned, justified. Casting our sins as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. And we've learned in our studies together that this justification is by faith, as it says that, that um, Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. So this justification is received by faith in Christ. When you receive his forgiveness, he casts your sins as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. You're a new creature in Christ. The old is past and the new has come. He doesn't look at you in your sin. He looks at you in, in the righteousness of his son. The propitiation put on your account, my account, and that's how he sees us, righteous in his son. Because Christ's blood covers the multitude of our sins and we've been washed as white as snow. So that's the first five chapters. It's, it's dealing with this concept of justification. And Paul, Paul took us through Romans chapter one, showing us that there are none righteous, no, not one. We need to be justified to be able to stand before God uh, in, in his son's righteousness because there is no self-righteousness. There, there, are, there are people who are more moral than others, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God as we saw in Romans 3. And so we, we come to that conclusion that we need a savior. We receive him and when we receive him, we're justified just as if I'd never sinned. Our sins are covered and we have a right standing with God the Father. 
But now after this, after we've gone through chapter 5, and Paul went through Abraham, and he said, therefore, 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 and he went through David, and he showed us two men that struggled in sin but were still justified by faith. We all grasp this concept. We're thrilled about our, our position in Christ. We're thrilled that we've been forgiven and cleansed of our unrighteousness. And now we're, we're left with this idea that, yes, I have a sin nature, but my sin is covered. And so Paul takes us from being justified to now looking at a concept that's very important in Romans called sanctified. Sanctified is a, is a term that means to be set apart, to be set apart. I've used this illustration a thousand times. I'll use it a thousand more before God takes me home. And, and I love the, the illustration God gave me years ago for this concept of sanctification, to be set apart. I had a dog, uh, our family had a dog named Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell was a dachshund that had a ravenous appetite. And Tinkerbell would eat everything she saw. And we had a little plate for her. It was a Winnie the Pooh plate that was set apart, sanctified for Tinkerbell's use. Whatever you put on that, she'd lick it clean. Absolutely resplendently clean with her nasty tongue. She would clean that Winnie the Pooh plate. So my wife went away on a women's retreat. I was left to care for the children. And uh, the dishes piled up and the house was a mess. I'm not very good at that. My daughter Kelly, wanting to have some semblance of order, which is important to her, tried to do things the way mom would. So she fixed us lunch, made sandwiches when she was little. It was really sweet. She wanted us to sit down like mama would do. And, uh, and she couldn't find any clean plates, so she had paper plates, but there weren't enough. And so she took the next cleanest plate and put my sandwich on the Winnie the Pooh plate. Because it was clean. And I wouldn't eat the sandwich, and I, I took time to explain to the children, as God gave me this great illustration, I said, let me share with you children what sanctification means. This plate, sweetie, has been sanctified, set apart for Tinkerbell. It's not for anyone else's use but Tinkerbell's. And so this sandwich now belongs to Tinkerbell. The Bible says that we have been sanctified, set apart for the master's use. The Bible says that we have been sanctified, set apart for the master's use. So we understand that we've been justified, and we're still struggling in sin. We all have agreed that we're all still struggling with sin, yes? Amen. But the beauty of it is, God doesn't look at us in our failure. He sees us in his his son's righteousness. So we're pretty thrilled by that. So Paul is now going to transition from justification to sanctification. What does it mean to be set apart for the master's use? And he's going to ask a question that all of us are, are going to ask, uh, because we're all struggling with it. And it's kind of like, well, I, you know, the things I want to do, those I don't do. And those things I don't want to do, those I do. And, and Paul's going to go through that as well and explain it. But he's going to ask a question that every one of us is going to ponder with this new gift of our get-out-of-hell-free card and our sanctification. We're going to ask this question, and this is what we find in chapter 6. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Chapter 6, Paul's big question, here goes. What shall we say then? Now that we're justified, what shall we say then? I mean, we've got our get out of hell free card. Our sins are covered. Even if I sin, I'm still in Christ's righteousness. What do we say with that then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How uh, How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon, reckon, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For, sh- for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is a resounding no. But God, what do you want us to understand from all of this that we would glean from you? This concept of sanctification. Why have you delivered us from death unto life and yet within us the ability to sin still exists? There's not going to be perfection on this earth And we've been covered by your blood, so our sins are forgiven. But Lord, what is the purpose for walking in sanctification? Lord, we ask that you would reveal all these to us. Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. We ask your blessing on the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. One author writes that this doctrine of justification is between two heresies, similar to Jesus being crucified between two thieves. Remember, he was on Golgotha between two thieves. Well, he says justification is a heresy, uh, or justification is, is between two heresies. And these heresies, he defines uh, by seeing at the end of chapter 5 that we have been justified by faith. We have peace, uh, we have peace, the peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, the second century father, Tertullian, said that just as our Lord was crucified between two thieves, so this great doctrine of justification is continually being crucified between two opposite heresies. The gospel keeps two truths together. God is holy. Yes? He's holy. Sins require that they be punished. Yes? The gospel tells us you are more sinful than you ever dared believe, right? I mean, the more we read it, the more we realize within me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. I am a wretch. And the more I read that, the more I realize that. And for any of us who don't realize that, we haven't done a lot of reading. Okay. (laughs) You are more sinful than you ever dared believe. Now, we tried to justify our sins, and we try to dial it down, and it's, it's, it's not adultery, it's an affair, right? We try to make it sound good. It doesn't work. You're more sinful than you dared to believe. To forget this leads to license and permissiveness. The more that we try to, to dial down you know, the intensity of our sin and, and explain it away, then it becomes permissive and we, we tend to allow it more and more, especially in our culture. 
And, and that's what we call liberalism. Liberalism. God is gracious. Do we believe that? Okay, good. All right, let's get into this. God is gracious. So in Christ, our sins are dealt with. Amen? Cast as far as east from the west to be remembered no more. Amen? I'm stoked on that one. God tells us you are more accepted in Christ than you ever dared hope. To forget this leads to legalism and moralism. If you eliminate one or the other of these truths, you fall into legalism or liberalism. There's a balance. And you eliminate the joy and the release of the gospel. Without a knowledge of our extreme sin, the payment of the gospel seems trivial and does not electrify or transform. But without knowledge of Christ's complete debt-satisfying death and death, or yeah, life and death, the knowledge of sin would crush or compel us to deny or repress it. So we have this balance between God's holiness and God's grace. And we have to avoid legalism and we have to avoid liberalism. We have to see our sin for the awfulness that it is, but in the same regard, we have to see the power of grace in, in, in our struggles. And, and so when Paul defines for all of us in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18, that we, we are all given over to our sinful desires. There are none righteous, no, not one, he goes on in chapter 3. I mean, we saw ourselves as we went through chapter 1. We all saw ourselves somewhere in that. And, and we're completely under the control of sin prior to knowing Christ. But there's a new power at work in our lives that now begins to rule over us. Colossians 1.13 says, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Acts 26.18, Paul wrote, The gospel comes to people to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So having died to sin does not mean that sin is no longer within you or that it is, has no more power and influence within you. It does, but sin no longer can dictate to you. You see, we were once slaves to sin, but now we have the ability to be slaves to righteousness. Now, when Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I was challenged this week uh, by an email, and they said, I dare you to tell this joke. So here goes. He's not here. He'll be probably second service, so this will be fun. It was by Tom Hunt. Yeah. Put your seatbelts on. No, I'm kidding. Four worms in a church. A minister decided that a visual demonstration would add emphasis to his Sunday sermon. Four worms were placed in four separate jars. So just imagine four jars on the podium here. The first worm was put in a container of alcohol, scotch. Unless there's another one that you like better. The second worm was put in a container of cigarette smoke. The third worm was put in a container of chocolate syrup. The fourth worm was put in a container of good, clean soil. At the conclusion of the sermon, the minister reported the following results. The worm in the alcohol, dead. The worm in the cigarette smoke, dead. The worm in the chocolate syrup, dead. And the fourth worm in the good, clean soil, alive. So the minister asked the congregation, what did you learn from this demonstration? And Tom Hunt was sitting in the back, and he quickly raised his hand and said, as long as you drink, smoke, and eat chocolate, you won't have worms. (laughs) 
We look for anything, any way, shape, or form to try to come up with a concept of why our sin is important to us and why we should be able to keep it. But the Apostle Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And sin is missing the mark. Sin is anything contrary to the law of God. And, and we look at that and we think, well, then what purpose does the law bring? And shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, I have my get out of hell free card. I've been justified. Why not just continue in sin? And so he asked this question that everyone is pondering. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You see, we come to chapter 6 and Paul reveals that in Christ we have not only been freed from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. We have victory in Christ. We can have a life different than we had when we entered into Romans chapter 1 where we are in bondage to sin. Many of us in this room, and I imagine the majority of us in this room, understand the power of addiction. I certainly do. I know what it's like to have my life in bondage to addiction. I know what that's like. And to be set free and no longer be a slave to sin, but be a slave to righteousness. I also know that in the entirety of my Christian life, I've never been freed from sin. My flesh as a Christian is just as vile as the flesh of someone who's not a Christian. I know what I'm capable of. But why observe the law? And where do I get the strength to observe the law and to, to see my life go from a place of tragedy to looking at a life of, of fulfillment and blessing where my, my marriage is intact and my children grow up in a godly environment and where there's rules and, and that there's, there's um, a balance of grace and, and a balance of morality that the two go hand in hand and they grow up with this understanding of how God blesses us when we honor and obey his commandments. You see, there's blessing that comes with the obeying of the commandments. I, I say to my, my Mormon uh, brethren, uh, and I, I use that term brethren of, in, uh, of faith, that they, they have a belief system. They don't understand grace as, as orthodoxy does. But you look at their lives and they're blessed because they observe the law. The law, the, the law preserves and the law blesses if we obey it. But it doesn't save. The law preserves and it blesses, but it doesn't save. And, and they live lives of moral character, observing the law, and, 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 and they, their lives are blessed. They live longer, they're healthier, uh, they, they have no debt, uh, they, they apply these principles in the scriptures, they don't understand grace completely, but in the Orthodox Church, we've gone so far to the side of grace that we've forgotten the observation of the law. And so, so we, we say, well, I got my get out of hell free card, it's not a problem that I'm living with my girlfriend. It's not a problem that, that you know, I, I have this addiction. I mean, God forgives me. Back off, man. Now, what is the point? Well, Paul reveals that we have a new identification in chapter 6. We have a very new, uh, a, a brand new identification. Um, we, we, we have to live with a new mentality. And, and, and yet, we still have this old mentality. And that's where Paul asks this question and, and, and many of us would probably ask this when we're observing Christianity. Oh, this sin that I'm about to indulge in is no big deal because God will forgive me. You ever been at that place? Five of you are honest. You, you, you just think, well, you know what? God will forgive me. I might as well do it. I've, I've gone this far. I've invested so much of my time and my energy. I might as well just enjoy at least what I've been striving for. God will forgive me. Does that help? 
Anyone else agree with me? Good, okay. People rationalize all types of sin. And that's the logic of the human mind. We don't have a clear understanding of repentance. You know what repentance is? Change. It means a change direction. You're going away from God and you turn and go back to him. It's a 180 degree turn going back to God, repenting. To turn away from sin and to turn in the opposite direction to God. And then and this idea that we, we have a proper understanding of what it means to turn back to God by his grace. God doesn't give us grace so we can see how close we can get to sin or get to the edge. He gives us grace so that we can back away and turn to him. That's the point. Grace doesn't lead to lawlessness. We look at the body of Christ and its orthodoxy and we have a liberalism. There's not a balance. And, and we're so fearful of a legalism that we've embraced a liberalism. And, and we think that we just have to preach the gospel and people get saved. But say, salvation has transformation. There has to be a result of us being saved. And, and, and a culture should be affected by Christians who are saved. I tire of this idea that it's just about the gospel. The gospel should see transformation in a culture. The idea that says I can do whatever I want because I'm under grace. That's what Paul's saying. No, it, 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 it's not the way it's supposed to be. You see, grace doesn't lead to lawlessness. It leads to carnality and it leads to laziness for those who don't balance it with an understanding that we're a new creature in Christ. You know, you can say, well, I'm saved now. I'm just going to kick back and be a couch potato for Jesus. Doesn't work that way. You've been, you've been saved unto good works. Not, not so that you can continue in carnality. Not so that you can be lazy and not engage the culture. Christians are fearful to engage the culture with truth. But yet, it's engaging the culture that brings that preservation and that blessing as we apply these principles to understand, uh, true understanding of the grace of God leads to liberty. Liberty. But not a liberty to indulge in sin. Because the person who truly grasps God's grace understands that this liberty is the liberty to get away from sin. The Apostle Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. The system that we've been given of this republic with the First Amendment that says we have the freedom of religion, understands, first of all, that we've been created in the image of God. And, and when it says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, the idea is that liberty first comes with our relationship with God and then with man. It's the vertical and the horizontal relationship, first vertical with God and horizontal with man that our relationship with God and our accountability to him, understanding that we've been saved, now we can apply these truths in liberalism to walk away from sin and apply them to our culture that men and women can be free, that a culture doesn't have to engage its citizenry in bondage to those things that are destroying them. And a government then calling it a disability and enabling it and empowering it. And so... That was the furthest thing from Paul's mind. True understanding of God's grace leads to a liberty, a freedom to enjoy life in the Lord. Enjoying life not in bondage, it's not how high you can get, but it's the things that you produce and, and the generations that are blessed by your actions. Self-indulgence is destruction to those around you. 
And, and the only way it can be subsid- the only way it can sustain itself is to be subsidized by those who are living righteously. And so the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. So if someone doesn't work and someone else is working, the only way that they can continue is that they're subsidized by the one who is working. And so if we don't establish these truths, the culture breaks down and lives are destroyed. You don't have to perform in order to, to receive God's blessing. He's given it to you. But you realize because you have favor with God, it's not a have to, it's a get to. It goes from being a responsibility to being a response to God. That's what sanctification is. It's not a responsibility. It's, it's, a, it's a response to God. It's not a have to, it's a get to. You want and you have this great privilege to serve him. This is what grace results in. But Paul answers the question when he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, certainly not. It is an illogical, but it is also an unscriptural view. Um, we have this new identification. Paul says, we died to sin. That's who we are now. Everything that was legally bound to Christ is legally bound to us. If his righteousness is put on our account, and if he overcame the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, everything that he's bound by, we're bound by, by faith. If he has been baptized, buried, that's what baptism is. It's associating yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If we've been buried with him, we also live with him. Everything that applies to him applies to us. It has nothing to do with water, what Paul's speaking of in chapter 6. It has to do with our position in Christ. We were once in Adam, and we were sinful at birth, but we have died to ourselves, and we're alive to Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. I'm a new creature in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Everyone say I. I is ego. Ego is self-preservation. And the only place for I is the cross. I have died. It's not about me and what I want. If it's left up to me and what I want, it results in sin and destruction with everyone around me because I am the most selfish human being on the planet. But when I have been crucified in Christ and it's Christ who now lives, the world is touched by someone who's other-centered. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. You take on a whole new identity. You are in Christ and he is in you. Your life is no longer lived for yourself because you're dead. Your life is lived in the power of Christ for others. Greater love has no man than this, and he lay down his life for a friend. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, be a servant of all, denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following the Lord. You put your flesh to death because you now have the ability in Christ to do that. And he gives you that strength through his Holy Spirit. Since we are one with Christ, everything that happened to him literally happened to us spiritually. We're new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17. I quoted it earlier, but here it is again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. You're empowered by the Lord to walk in the newness of life. Now, Paul isn't saying that in Christ we'll never sin again. We're going to sin. The old man is still there. And, And speaking of this power of sin, we were in bondage to it at once early on as we saw in the earlier chapters but now that we've been crucified with christ we have been set free from from the bondage of sin we're no longer under that bondage we're a new creature in christ verses six through ten 
this is this, this victory, this, this radical information that God gives us. Look at verses 6 through 10. The Apostle Paul says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. You see, when it says that we have reckoned the old man dead, and we've done away with, the word done away with is key. In the Greek, it's katergeo, which just simply means that it's been rendered inactive or paralyzed. The old man is paralyzed. He's not dead. He's paralyzed. And, and, and we've rendered that, this idea that, that he's been paralyzed. The old nature wasn't annihilated. It wasn't wiped out, but it was paralyzed. It wasn't completely destroyed, but it was, it was rendered inactive. And as long as we're in this body, there's going to be a battle between the flesh and the spirit. But the joy is that that old man has been rendered paralyzed. And, and it's like a bully that used to pick on you. And now his hands are tied. And the only way he can pick on you is you've got to untie his hands. We allow the enemy. We give the enemy permission. But that is something that we do. We have the power to walk in the newness of life and, and, and to reckon him paralyzed. This idea that the enemy of our souls, Satan, was the accuser of the brethren. And every time you tried to do what was right, he reminded you of how many times you failed to ever accomplish it before. Why try again? And he would remind you of all your failures in the past. It's like living with a parent that never says anything nice to their children. You're stupid. You're ugly. You can't do anything right. You are so dumb. You, you, are, you are the most miserable thing that's ever happened to us as parents. We wish you had never been born. Why would you even... Do you see how awful that is? And some of you live with that loop. And that's the same loop as the enemy. Their lives are paralyzed. They wanted to paralyze yours. They were victimized. And they want to be, they, they, now they want to victimize others. Instead of allowing that bondage to be broken and walk in the newness of life and say, it may have happened to me, but it's not going to happen to my kids. I'm dead to that, and I'm going to live to Christ. That old man, I have silenced the voice of, of your grandparents and my parents, and I'm giving to you a new parent in Christ. It dies with me. I reckon it dead. It's paralyzed. Christ has delivered me. That loop is no longer there. I have replaced it with the voice of the Lord, who says, I've, I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. I'm not going to put upon you the death that was put upon me. Christ has lifted me from that bondage and I'm not going to transfer it to you. And you have to hold every thought captive to the mind of Christ. And you let, you let psalms and hymns and spiritual praises come from your mouth. And you speak words of life and not words of death. You don't murder with your words. We're new creatures in Christ. We walk in that. We give to our children that which we didn't receive from our parents, but we receive from the Lord. 
And then we transform a culture because all of a sudden we're infusing lives with life. But we must walk in the newness of life. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can be forgiven of all the things that happened to you. You can be forgiven of all the things that you've done. But if you don't reckon that old man dead, that old man paralyzed, and you still listen to that loop, and nothing changes, and you have your get out of hell free card, all you're doing is transferring that misery to the next generation. And you're dumping on them. And you're not allowing that old man to be paralyzed. You're not allowing Christ to live and to reign in the members of your body. You don't render the old man inactive. You see, the old man is now lost of the power to control you and to intimidate you. The Bible says when you're on your way to the court of law with your adversary, which is the devil, agree with him. He's going to say, Rob, you did this, this, and this. He'd go, yes, I did. You're absolutely right. But I've been forgiven. And when you take that to the judge who's the father, his son is my attorney. And he's going to say, Father... If you'll notice, there are entries on those dates that, this, that Satan declares. But they're, in, 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 they're, they're not legible because they've been covered in my blood. And the father will say, case dismissed. And he'll say, go and sin no more. Don't, don't walk back to your house arm in arm with, with the enemy of your soul, listening to his lies and going and perpetrating those same things on your children. You're a new creature in Christ. Resist the devil and he will flee, it says in James chapter 4. The, the word resist means don't listen to him anymore. It's like, it's like being in a restaurant with your wife and the music is playing. And I, I'm, my hearing's going now. But to, to, to intently listen and to, and to just drown out the rest of the music and the distraction. Don't listen to him anymore. Let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. Let, let his thoughts captivate you. Let his word fill you. Let these words of life transform you. Being renewed by, by, by the transforming of your mind, let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. These are words of life. You're free to choose not to sin now. You have the ability to walk away. You can reckon him paralyzed and not listen to him anymore. You have a new voice to tune your ear to. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans, 8, uh, Romans 6, 8 through 10, he says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Because Jesus lives, we're, we're alive with him. The word reckon, again, is just this idea that you add everything up. It's an accounting term. You, you, you add everything up, all the numbers of the facts and you see that they are so. And, and we, we reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. I've added it up. I don't need it anymore. I want what God has for me. And we choose by his strength and by his power because we now have this ability in Christ to walk away. And we're alive in Christ Jesus to, to live and not to walk in death anymore. This is a fact we died to sin. Christ died to sin. Everything that applies to him applies to me. This is a fact. I've been raised with Christ. If Christ has been raised from the dead, I have been raised from the dead. The old man has been rendered inactive. He's paralyzed, reckoned dead. And then finally, verse 12, 
this practical application, Paul says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Paul's not teaching positive thinking here. He's not, he's not saying just visualize yourself dead to sin and alive to God. It's not Norman Vincent Peale. He's saying you are dead to sin as a rule of your life. These are facts. Now act on them. This is true. Now act upon them. You have the power to do it. Now do it. And this is how it works practically. You choose to do the right thing, knowing that sin can no longer control you unless you allow it. That's your choice. You don't let sin reign. As long as we are in these bodies, it will have this, this, this ugly nature to try to rise up again and try to rule over us. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh. But it says you walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And that's in Galatians 5, 17 and 16. The spirit lusts after the flesh and the flesh lusts after the spirit. Galatians 5. The spirit lusts after the flesh and the flesh lusts after the spirit. I get the idea that the flesh lusts after the spirit. But I have no idea for a long time why the spirit would lust after the flesh. Why would God want what the flesh has? I know that the flesh wants what God has. But why would God, the spirit, want what the flesh has? I never understood that until I realized something. The flesh, prior to knowing Christ, Romans 1, the flesh sits on the throne of our life. I am in control. I did it my way. That is the theme song in hell, by the way. In the flesh, I, Rob McCoy, sits on the throne of his life. And in my selfishness, in my self-focus, and in my bondage to sin, I'm destroying myself and everyone around me. Oh, I may be tempered by the culture that once had a Christian ethos, but even that is rapidly dying. And give me another generation, and everybody will lose any vestige of a Christian presence. And all those boundaries will be gone and we will indulge in everything we want to do and what is right we'll call wrong and what is wrong we'll call right and we'll just have a field day. And the, and the flesh will now be God because the flesh lusts after the spirit. I want to be in control. I want to do it my way. I don't want to be accountable. I will redefine everything. I will redefine the universe. There's no God. There's no creator. There's no designer. It is me. And I am the center of the known universe. And I will dictate and demand what I want. And I'm entitled. And you will give to me or I will kill you. And all culture breaks down. And sin reigns. And it's this, this, the second law of thermodynamics that everything reduces to its least common denominator. And it's all wiped out and we're left in ashes. But in our darkness, those who walked in darkness saw great light. And that light came into the world. And that was the light of men. It was the light of life. It began to transform cultures and lives. And what happened is the spirit lusted after the flesh and the spirit said, I want the place of authority. God said, let me sit on the throne of your life. Let me give you the strength to do what is right and transform not only your life, but the lives of those around you. 
Let me give you this justification and the power of sanctification to transform a dying world into a world that has life and purpose and meaning. And you choose to walk in that, to yield and to submit yourselves. And by the power of his, of his spirit, you yield and you submit and you, you give over the members, this idea of the members of your body. It speaks of your physical bodies, your mental powers. You don't listen to the voice of the enemy anymore. You, you, you find yourself in the word of God. Before Christ, my strength, my energy, my appetites, my speech, my mind, my imagination, my emotions were used in the service of sin. I would think about it. I would, I would formulate it. I would, I would figure out ways to do it. It was just vile. And then all those energies would just be driven towards that one purpose. And I used all of that, every aspect of my body, to please myself, to fulfill my fleshly appetites. But now Paul says, don't present your members, your body, your mind, your strength, your energy, your appetites, your speech, your imagination, your emotions. Don't present the members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But... Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God to be used for his glory, to be set apart like the Winnie the Pooh plate. You become as an instrument, a tool or a weapon and through Christ, the members which were once used for destruction are now used as a tool of God for righteousness and transformation of your life and the culture in which you live a vessel that can be poured into and pour out of in order to bless others. You're a vessel of righteousness. This is what God does. I have two things in the next six minutes. One is this. This is the balance between legalism and liberalism. And then in the middle would be the gospel. The gospel says that God is holy and God is love. Legalism says God is holy. Liberalism says God is love. The gospel says that you receive God's perfect righteousness legalism says that you have to earn your own righteousness liberalism says you don't need perfect righteousness it's all good the gospel says matter is good yet we are fallen physical enjoyment is good but live wisely we believe in humanity we believe in humanism not that that humanism is in control, but we believe in celebrating the differences and the achievements of man, but not at the expense of having God on the throne. So this is the gospel, that matter is good, yet we are fallen. Physical enjoyment is good, but live wisely. Legalism says this, matter is bad and we are fallen. Be suspicious or reject physical pleasure. Asceticism. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang around with those who do. Liberalism says, matter is good and we aren't fallen. Satisfy yourselves. Eat, drink, and be merry. Woo! The gospel says sin affects both individuals and social and civic systems. Do both evangelism and civic and social actions. Legalism says sin only affects individuals, so we just do evangelism. It's all about the gospel. Liberalism says we're naive about the depth of human sin, so just do social action. There's a balance. Amen? Two more. The gospel says go through guilt, but rest in Christ. Legalism says go into guilt and work it off. Liberalism says go away from guilt. 
Convince yourself you're okay. I like me. The gospel says, repent of sins and of self-righteousness. Legalism says, repent of sins. Liberalism says, repent of neither. There's a balance. We're sanctified, we're justified, justified, we're sanctified. We don't give our members over to sin any longer. I, I said, I've, now I've got four minutes, I'll, I'll close with one of my favorite illustrations of this idea of what it means to be sanctified and, and allowing the members of your body no longer to be used as instruments of unrighteousness, but as instruments of righteousness. God has given you the power and the ability. So he gives you a commandment and he gives you the power to obey the commandment. He also gives you the power to walk away from the voice of the enemy, to consider that paralyzed and no longer be bound to it. You're no longer bound to sin. You're now a slave of righteousness and you choose to walk in the newness of life. He'll give you a commandment and he'll give you the power to obey the commandment. He gave uh, King Saul a commandment. Uh, Samuel, who was the prophet, came to Saul, the king of Israel, and he said, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. This is 1 Samuel 15. And thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant, nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. I want a scorched earth policy on Amalek. I don't want anything that they've even ridden on to survive. Amalek would pick on the, the elderly and the infirm that would trail to the back like wolves would hunt in a pack of the weakest and they, 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 they attack the Israelites when they're coming out of Egypt. And God says, you don't touch my people. He says, now go in and wipe out Amalek. Utterly destroy them. And, and he gives it very clear. I want everything wiped out. So Saul gathered the people together, numbered them in Telium, 200,000 foot soldiers, and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came into the city of Amalek and laid, lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go and depart, go down in Amalek, lest I destroy you with them. He showed kindness to them. So Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And he utterly destroyed the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And they were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, and they utterly destroyed that. So it's kind of like saying, I believe in the commandments of God, and I am going to obey certain ones, but others I'm not. Well, it says, be not drunk of wine, but of the Holy Spirit. Well, I kind of like my wine, so that one I'm just going to put over here in the, I'm covered by grace. But the one that says, do not eat bat meat in Deuteronomy, I'm going to observe that because I believe that that should be observed. So Saul pick and choose what God told him to do. When God commands it, you obey the entirety of it. He kept Agag alive and the sheep that he wanted, but he killed all the ones that were worthless. He didn't obey God. And so Samuel approaches him, and the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul. 
It was told Samuel saying, Saul went to Carmel and indeed he has set up a monument for himself. He's gone around, passed by and gone down to Gilgal. Samuel went to Saul. So this old man, Samuel, he's probably in his late 80s, 90s and he's just walking up to Gilgal and he's coming to see Saul the king and he's the prophet, Samuel's a prophet and Saul sees him. He says, blessed are you of the Lord. Praise God, brother. I have performed the commandments of God. But Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the cattle which I hear? Because you can see Saul going, praise God, I've obeyed the Lord. And he's like holding the mouth. And and Samuel says, oh, you have? What's the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the cattle I hear? And Saul said, well, they brought them. Uh, they've brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. The people did it, not me. And we really saved them to worship the Lord. That's called justifying your sin. And Samuel said, shut up. Actually, it says, be quiet. I can just imagine this 80, 90 year old man going, shut it. He shut it. And at this point, Samuel elderly goes, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. Now, Agag is the king of the Amalekites. He's supposed to be dead. Saul didn't kill him because he wanted to parade him as a trophy. So they bring Agag to Samuel. Yeah, bring him up here. And Agag sees Samuel. He's like, hey, bro, surely the bitterness of death has passed. What's up, man? And Samuel says, as, a sword has, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. This is the Bible. Check it out. This is good movie stuff. So Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. 80 plus year old. Agag. <laughs> Let's pray. (laughs) I close with this. Pay attention. Samuel shows Saul how to obey God. Later, Samuel's dead. Saul goes out to war with Jonathan. Both Saul and Jonathan die. David's heart is broken. A man comes to say that Saul and Jonathan are dead. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 1. David said to the young man that came to tell him the news about Saul and Jonathan, he says, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? The young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered him. I said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I said to him, I'm an Amalekite. He said to me, please stand over me and kill me for anguish has come upon me, but my life is still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet was on his arm. And he said, I brought it to you, my Lord, to David. And David took hold of his own clothes and tore them and so did with all the men that were with him. And then he mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because of the they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? 
He says, well, I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute that man. And he struck him and he died. You see, the sin that you're unwilling to put to death will ultimately come back and kill you. You can imagine as Saul is in battle, he's disobeyed God and he's fallen on his spear and his life is ebbing and he's watching the enemy close in and he knows that they're going to abuse him and use him as a trophy like he did with Agag. He turns the only man he can find alive on Mount Gilboa and he says, who are you? He says, I'm an Amalekite. Now you can imagine, I think it went like this. Saul's realizing he has played the fool and erred exceedingly. And he's looking around as his life is ebbing from him and he has a saved soul but a wasted life. And he sees how he's estranged himself from Jonathan. He's tried to kill David and his whole life is a wreck. And yet he was anointed by God unto good works and he never did them. He never obeyed. And he turns, he says, who are you? I can imagine the voice was this. I'm an Amalekite. And I've come to kill you. And he slowly puts the the spear in his chest and looks over him. (sighs) Takes his crown, brings it to David, tries to get some garner, some benefit from it. David says, I know about you. Kill him. Amalekites were the enemies of God's people. Sin is the enemy of God's people. God has called your members, your mind, your thoughts, your heart, your body to be used for his glory. Put the voice of the enemy to death. The sin you're unwilling to kill will ultimately kill you. Learn from Saul. Walk in sanctification. We'll learn more about this in our study in the book of Romans. Long study, sorry, but we had to get it in. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you, God, that you've called us to this sanctification. And Lord, I know in this room, and I would say in the entirety of the room, the reality is everybody struggles with sin. But you've called us to render, to paralyze the old man, to reckon him dead, that we would no longer offer the members of our body to sin, but unto righteousness. And Lord, there are some in the room who have never understood the power of of justification, let alone sanctification. But Lord, that we would all be new creatures in Christ and walk in the newness of life as new creatures in Christ. Lord, we come to a place where we're called to repent and to turn from our sin and to embrace you and walk in the righteous statutes that you've called us to. Not in legalism, but in obedience. Not a have to, but a get to. That we have that ability. And Holy Spirit, as you move through this room and you don't condemn but you do convict you're speaking to hearts of people that need to walk away and turn and come back to you they need to put Agag to death and live unto Christ there's time for obedience in this room there's some that need forgiveness but there's others that need to walk in obedience and Lord as we spend this time in prayer I pray that you would just cause a conviction and and a heart to just cry out and, and say, Lord, by your power, give me the strength to walk in this newness, to offer the members of my body, my mind, my emotion, my thoughts, that I will tune out and silence the voice of the enemy and listen to the voice of my God. And so, Lord, I pray you'd bless this time. In Jesus' name.
Amen.